1: clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Welcome to FYI, ARK's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week's guest is Chip Wilson, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and most notably the founder of apparel company, Lululemon. Long before Apple and Tesla opened its first company-owned stores, Lululemon pioneered the concept of vertical retail in North America. Unlike other sports apparel companies that sold to retailers, Lululemon designed and manufactured its own clothing, which it then sold in its own stores. By owning all aspects of production and retail, it commanded software-like gross margins. Today, Lululemon is one of the most successful apparel companies of this generation, with a market capitalization of $50 billion, almost 10 times that of Gap. In this tell-all episode, Chip gives his insights on Lululemon's business model, why Kid and Ace didn't take off, and his latest involvements in Ammer and Anta, which some are calling the Nike of China. I am James Wang, and I am joined on this episode by Sam Chorus. To start, maybe Chip I thought it would be great just to give our audience an intro of the apparel industry and kind of the companies that that operate in that space. You know, we invest primarily in technology and disruptive innovation. When people think about apparel companies, they think of low margins and high competition. Some would consider the space kind of uninvestable. Yet Lululemon has gross margins higher than Apple and a new entrants like Anta has revenues growing faster than Salesforce, which are you know, kind of counterintuitive. How would you characterize kind of the apparel market for people who are not maybe specialists in this space?
3: Well, in the technical business, and I think you can look at, if, let's just compare Lululemon, and, and I'd include almost all the technical apparel companies, that, which is different than fast fashion. If you compare those to Tesla and Apple, it was really, you had a technical product which when we were all selling through the wholesale market, we could never get full value for it. There was too much technology in it that was going unsaid and the customers couldn't see the value in it. And they didn't really, there wasn't a real connection with the brand. So I think actually probably Lou Lemon did it before even Apple. And that was, so it was making a technical product, making it beautiful and then taking it directly to the consumer. So if you want to differentiate in the apparel space, I think that you could look at Tesla versus GM, Chrysler, Ford. You know, this passed the Detroit companies. Of course, Tesla passed Volkswagen just recently, too. So a better quality product, better price through a new business model. And I think that that would be the way to describe the apparel market. Either you've got a new business model or you don't.
2: When I look at the gross margins, even for Nike, it's like 40% plus, Lululemon 50% plus. Those are surprising to people who don't follow this space. How are what people call you know glorified spandex? How are companies like this able to command such gross margins sustainably?
3: Well, in the fashion business, you're just chasing fashion. and It's more of an Instagram model where when you're in the technology business, you're always providing something that you can always push R&D which eventually, if you're doing it right, produces technology that provides a solution for people of which you can get a higher margin for and because there's less competition. And also you're trying to pay for your R&D. And you never know when you're going to have lean years in R&D and great years in R&D. So I think what's happened over the last 15, 20 years is just just an explosion in what makes apparel – Work, so to speak, for the athlete, which has now gone into the street, which has created just a, you know large tailwinds for that business, and consequently large margins.
0: Right, and then I think also with Lululemon, right, what made it so unique is that vertical retail business model, right, extraordinarily different. And I think now you know you look at Instagram, and there's a number of people trying to do street technical apparel, just going straight through Instagram going direct to consumer. How do you kind of think of that landscape now and how it's evolved?
3: Well, what occurred was there was wholesale and then Lululemon went direct to the consumer with vertical stores. And Lululemon built out enough vertical stores where they became essential for people to understand the tactile technology and fit. And then when e-commerce came in, Blue Lemon had the right amount of retail stores, not too many like The Gap or J. Crew or something like that, but just enough where people knew enough about the product where they could buy off e-commerce effectively. What I've seen is that the technology companies that have come in and tried to go direct to e-com digitally without in a retail stores have failed. And then they've all had to backtrack and now they're all trying to open up retail stores and but they're not really good at retail they're good at digital and that's two different animals altogether obviously the i think with the advent of 5g coming down the pipe and the way that we will interact with e-commerce on a more of a video basis, or maybe even like a an in-store experience, but maybe through virtual reality or even augmented reality, will change that whole thing. And that's probably coming in the next three to five years. Somebody's going to do it and do it really well. And hopefully, it's my Ammer businesses with you know the Arcteric's and Peak Performance, Solomon, Atomic, and Wilson Balls.
2: I think you, you hammered a really important point on the difference between kind of wholesale apparel companies and vertical retail, which Lululemon pioneered. Um, I don't think this is really well appreciated. When people think about, say, Lululemon versus Under Armour, they think of one is focused on women and one is focused on men when the underlying business models are so different. Could you kind of talk through that key difference and what it means in terms of how you're able to manage cash flow and what kind of margins you can command in the end?
3: Okay, you asked me a lot there, so you'll have me maybe come back at the end and I have got to get kind of a foundation for the conversation. When I was in the surf skate snowboard business, it really affected a 14 to 18-year-old boy that was insecure about their personality and so would buy big logo t-shirts and garments in order to subconsciously show the girl that they really who they really loved, you know, who they were through the marketing program of whatever company's t-shirt they were wearing that is essentially under armour's model it's sponsoring big name athletes making quite inexpensive not very technical apparel putting a big logo on it charging a lot for it and that's that model it also as you can see probably walking around it also hits a what i'd call an more of an insecure overweight armchair quarterback who maybe between the ages of 35 and 55, who wishes they were an athlete, but really aren't. So that's what that logo speaks to. The market there is very skinny, but because they just to basically take any product and put their logo on it and get it out, that it appears as though Under Armour is big and because they do a lot of volume, but at a skinny margin, I would say. So the, the Lou Lemon model then was... Going direct. So basically, not only originally it was like we'd miss out the middleman at the wholesaler, but also we manufactured ourselves. So we actually had two markups. Now I know that that's kind of gone by the wayside at Lemon because everyone was scared about child labor and Asian factories, or at least as scared Lemon board was, which really gave up, I think, a major competitive edge. But I'm getting away from the picture right now. So basically, in the wholesale model, you been very simplified. You make something for ten, you sell it to Dick's Sporting Goods for twenty, and they sell it for forty. So for Lululemon and the Amherst products now, it's the idea is to make something for twelve dollars, a better quality product at a, and then sell it for a better price of thirty six. So we get triple the markup rather than double the markup. But you get it between twelve and thirty six is massive, as opposed to the ten to the twenty. Now. When you're doing wholesale, you can make samples up and you can sell to the whole world. But the problem is you've got to make samples up a year beforehand in order to show people, in order for them to order it, for it to get manufactured and to to go through the process. With Lululemon, by only having our own stores and our own e-commerce and not answerable to any wholesaler, we could actually, you know, I kind of laugh about it, we could actually do run, we were the first to do really runway right to production. We just never did even runway. We just didn't even care about the New York fashion magazines and the wholesalers and everything else. We just skipped the whole thing. So we were able to deliver actually a street fashion product made technical even a year before all the New York fashion houses or Paris fashion houses were. So we had the best of all models.
2: This model, of course, requires you guys to build out physical stores, which is a very capital intensive and people intensive process. And you've mentioned that kind of the newer brands are starting to do that after trying pure e commerce. Why do you think pure e commerce doesn't work, even in an age where internet shopping seems very much in the vogue? And what's the key to succeeding for these folks? And maybe if you are starting a company today in, in the apparel space in doing physical retail?
3: Well, I think you could, for people that know better, they could think about Apple trying to go through Best Buy or some, some wholesaler. You just can't get the price that you want going through a middleman that can't describe the product perfectly. There's so much to the possibility of an Apple phone that if it's just sold through somebody on the floor working on commission that's trying to run you through really quickly, you're not really getting the full experience. Where I suspect that Apple knew if they could give people the full meal deal on what their product was, then their ability to use it and what they use it for, but more so their drive to then talk word of mouth marketing. So my theory is is that you can have all the social and marketing and blah, blah, blah you want. There's just nothing like someone telling me, like, this is a great product and you got to go get it. So that's mostly the due diligence, which is, I'd say, 100 times more effective than seeing an ad on a paper or something where it's, you know, an influencer is trying to tell you something. If a trusted friend is telling you that this is great, then then it's there. So for instance, like at Lululemon, because we went only by word of mouth, like about our quality, when a person gets told like that, rather than, well, let me take it back. If someone just walked into the store and hadn't been told that, they may not buy anything. But they'd come back six months later and they'd hear more about it, so they'd buy one piece. They'd test it out for like a half a year and then come back and buy two or three more pieces. Where if you hear it from a friend directly, and they they see it and they see you use it, then the propensity for them to go in immediately in the store and spend and buy three pieces immediately is really it's almost a hundred percent. And that kind of goes back to then the model of of that model then allows a capital intensive store to open up and do a payout quite quickly. Let's say eighteen months, paying out the the leasehold improvements of the store. So, you're basically breaking even on a store every 18 months. And of course, when that's happening, then you can borrow an exponential amount of money to grow it as fast as you want. But that has its downfalls too.
0: Right. And I think, I mean, obviously you have to scale the physical, but you also need to scale the personnel. And I think that was a, also a big part of your founding story is attracting the right type of person who believes in the product. Can you kind of go into how you formed that and kind of evolved? you know, as you said, the West Beach mentality into, you know, that was for a certain section of people and now Lululemon's for this new group of people.
3: Yeah. I mean, again, the West Beach was for the 14 to 18-year-old boys. And then Lululemon was, I mean, the great thing about athletic apparel is that people will allow you to put a logo on it. And on top of that, there's no segmentation between male and female and 10-year-olds and 80-year-olds. But... The key is to, you know, for us was like that single professional 30, 32-year-old woman, highly stylish, athletic, and so she's the driver then for all women, and then probably a 37-year-old single male was the driver for that. Lots of disposable money, technical, traveling, you know, they've got, you know, they can afford to buy the technical, they can afford to invest in their wardrobe, so to speak, and their athletics. Now, where was I going with all this again? Ask me again. Now that I've set the foundation, where am I going?
0: Building the team. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Chip,
2: like one angle would be, for example, the controversy you've endured were kind of your comments on women. But in your book, you talk a lot about how the, the early founding team, you specifically chose women both in the focus groups and in the initial stores. Maybe just talk a little bit about that.
3: So the customer was also brand new. And I mean, the deep, deep thinking behind it, of course, is, the, you know, the day I woke up and, six, and I read in 1997 that 6% of the graduates at a university were women. And it's actually interesting in this whole conversation about men and women, that was actually the date when actually men fell behind women. So it's almost been like 25 years now. But the what it did is, of course, once... Women kind of got control of their birth control and they could actually work till 30, 32, maybe even now. Now it's even expanded to 38, 39, 40. But at that time, it was, I have to kind of go back a bit. You know, when I was in university, of course, women got married and pregnant at 23 and basically went out of the workforce because I worked in a lot in Africa, and I knew that the higher the education a woman had the longer she would wait to have children and the fewer she would have. I knew there was going to be a shift in North America so by having identifying an employee market that had never existed before which I'd call the twenty three to thirty two year old woman professional highly educated media savvy fashionable all that but there was also this customer that had never existed before. So that was really the conduit of all that. But the friction point in the sales process was between the person working in the retail store and that customer. So our customer was so highly educated and well off. And the reality of it is the big money was probably in the 40 to 45 year old woman who looked at the 32 year old one went to wear. but in order to be able to talk intelligently to that customer, I just didn't want a 17 year old salesman person like Zara would have selling something on looks. We had a technical product. So I needed to train that, that what was 99% females in our stores to all be future CEOs. So then we set, you know, the the development platform for high growth then was to set up something called a linguistic abstraction, which was 30 terms and definitions which we could use globally and everyone would understand from design to production to to Shanghai to, to Munich. So inside of that, the terms came from, you know, probably things that I'd learned as a kid through my parents or competitive swimming or athletics. But also the landmark form, the book Good to Great, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The Psychology of Achievement, those are the foundations where these terms came from. And so having everyone actually go through that and read it and understand it in the first three or four months then created the foundation for us to grow really, really fast. And all that thinking came from the book, The E-Myth, about how to set up a company as though it was going to be franchised so it can grow exponentially.
2: That's great. Reading your book, Chip, I clearly sensed you had very strong opinions on retail and retail strategy. But as Lulu was kind of growing, e-commerce was starting to take off. I didn't get a sense that you were super into e-commerce as a segment, maybe because you were so much into retail. Looking back, did you feel like you paid the right amount of attention to e-commerce? And what's your current view on kind of e-commerce and where should that fit in the strategy for a company in operating in this space?
3: Yeah, I know that that rumor is out there that I may have like not agreed with e-commerce. I think what's important is that there's different stages of e-commerce as it grew up. And it's like I say in the future with you know 5G and, and all VR and everything, that's going to totally change. At the time, it wasn't like it is now. It was very rudimentary and actually quite ugly and like a one-page type thing and so... I felt like it wasn't up to the quality standards of our product. And I felt like the only thing that I, that I was really good for at that time was what I'd call a commodity product. So, ball bearings or something where people didn't have to touch, feel, try on, fit, all that type of thing. Where I did move into it was using it for the commodity products we did have, so yoga mats and straps. And then I used it for anything that I that I wanted to discount because it was a year or two old in product and I need to move it out of my warehouse. So, it wasn't uh, degrading my brand is what I would say. And and moving it into where I felt like discount people were looking for product and where commodity people were looking for product. And on top of that, of course, we were opening up stores and our product was so hot, we couldn't even fulfill our own stores. So every time we opened a store, it was making so much money and very quickly that I didn't have to move into the e-commerce space. And it was really only the 2008 crisis where the bottom fell out of everything, and everyone stopped everything for like about eight months. That was created the opportunity for then for us to like up, do nothing in the company I, because we couldn't grow for those eight months, and so we had lots of time to sit back and fix everything, and then set the e-commerce base in order to go forward. Two thousand eight crisis—the best thing that ever happened to us. Well. So then you are asking about going forward and where e-commerce sits on it. I. You know, Lou Lem's in a very key position, as I would say, again, all all the Ammer brands are too, in that with athletic clothing with Lycra in it, someone can have a size like a one above or a one below and it will still fit. So the propensity to ship back isn't as much. Consequently, the propensity to ask for three or four sizes and ship three back is not as much. So the returns on Athletic clothing are substantially less, and the fit is substantially better.
0: That's super interesting, especially that 2008 point. You know, that's something that I think we see across a lot of industries is it takes this time of crisis for people to reevaluate the way things are doing or to adopt new technology and new avenues for strategy. And talking to the other companies that you're now invested in also doing sportswear, What drew you to those companies and what do you see in them that you also saw in Lululemon? And where do you kind of see them going?
3: Well, I lost control of Lululemon. I just wasn't, you know, I was a product brand guy. I didn't understand the nuances, the Machiavellian principles of power inside a board and people's desire for power and think to, you know, for their own good and the keys short-term visions, and basically lying, you know, like, oh, we're here for the long time, we're going to here to do you good, but they're not. So everyone told me that, but I'm such a trusting guy, I couldn't get myself around it. So now you have, I think the foundation of Lululemon is so phenomenal that, and I think they, they'd messed up for the five years from two thirteen to two eighteen so badly when the probably the biggest growth in that market was there and Lululemon languished and everyone else kind of took off. And Lou Lemon took him that long to kind of start reinvesting in the foundation of the company. So anyway, I lost control of that and couldn't lead it anymore and, and really didn't like to be with, you know, the short-term thinking that Wall Street has created around quarterly numbers was really, really hard for me as an entrepreneur to deal with. And I, It was good learning for me. So it's beautiful learning for me. I learned lots. And so now I had this opportunity to invest in this other company, Amherst, which owned like five or six athletic brands. But I couldn't do it on my own. I probably, in order to succeed in the future, I probably needed a Chinese partner and I needed a world-class private equity firm. And it just so happened that as I was looking at it and I had a banker to look at this, it's going to be like a five or six million euro deal that I knew I couldn't do it alone. I didn't understand how to do deals and blah, 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 the due diligence and all that type of thing. So about a month into it, you know, suddenly there was an offer on Amherst and it came from Anta, which is kind of the Nike of China. They have like 12,000 anti-stores and maybe about 1,500 fila stores, which are, fila stores are direct, like Lemon and the Antistores are wholesale. And then uh, Fountain Vest, which is a bunch of Goldman's people out of Hong Kong, and then Tencent was in for 10%. And I went, like, that's a dream team. And so I phoned them up and, You know, I said like I didn't want to compete against them on price, so why don't you let me in on your deal? So I got in for twenty percent of that deal. So why did I like it so much? When I think the combination of those people was phenomenal. It was a global company. I knew everything about being global. It was at the an unbelievable fifty to hundred year brands that didn't know how to do apparel and didn't know how to do direct to consumer. And but more so, what I liked is that the owner of Anta. It's a public company out of Hong Kong, but controlled by the Ding family. And Mr. Chairman Ding is maybe about 48 years old. Kids are growing up. He's totally in it. And in China, they have a different philosophy, both in government and business. And that is they want to do what's good for the whole company. They don't have the same pressure in America, but like doing what you have to do for the 1% shareholder. And so they're run for the entire good of the company or the entire good of the country, It's a different way of operating, and I think it's the way that will um, eventually be the demise of North America.
2: I, I, I was going to ask you about that point. You wrote about this in the new prologue to your book that, you know, basically observing that China's greatest strength uh, is kind of what Western democracies consider its biggest weakness, this valuing of group identity over individual identity. Could you maybe give an anecdote of your dealings or kind of experience working with ANTA as a company or, or Mr. Ding's family that kind of really showcases this point?
3: Well, I think what someone, like Chairman Ding, like, what, like myself is that he was in it right from being a child and grew the whole thing up. And so I think President Xi was governor of the Fujian province where Chairman Ding was, so they all became friends. And I guess President G said uh, to Chairman Ding that he should get out of making apparel or shoes for like Nike and Adidas and everybody, he should set up his own brand. I may be getting away from what you're trying to say, but his ability then to shift the company and go into his own brand and not do it for everybody else. like. Once the chairman decides that, then the whole company moves that way and they move quickly. I can only give you an analogy of like when I look at North America versus Europe and trying to get things done, it's like in North America, you can move a million times faster than you can anywhere else. It's a little bit like trying to get things done in California on a human resources basis versus Nevada, you know, like. California. I just don't even want to open up there. Do you know what I mean? So, but China is like, because they operate like that where the chairman says I want to move in this direction, then the whole company moves on it. And there's no argument about it. Mm -hmm. I guess it's a little bit like when I was at West beach and I had the surf skate company and then I wanted to move into snowboarding, but my company was big enough where there's too many people who wanted a voice in it. And for me to like move it into snowboarding was really, really tough. And that was only like a $15 million company at the time. And so you can imagine then when I was at Lululemon and I'm trying to move it into mindfulness, not move it out of yoga, but move it into mindfulness to create a new branding and a new layer of, I don't know, psychological attachment to the brand that take it into the future.
2: I definitely see that. I mean, you California is trying to build this new high-speed rail system and it's the most expensive high-speed rail per mile in anywhere in the world. New York subway is the most expensive to build by an order of 3X, even compared to Europe, which is shocking. But this notion that you can move quickly also has its drawbacks, right? If, for example, the decision is not good, there's insufficient pushback. Like, Do you think the Chinese model is at the right point of that kind of balance of dissenting voices and consenting voices? Uh, Where do you think the right balance is?
3: I think China is in the perfect place at the perfect time. And it's, I mean, of course, I'm older than you, but I think you've read enough about it. I mean, the world is growing exponentially. I mean, I always kind of give the thing back in 1997. I mean, it would take me maybe two months to do a deal. Now I can do like six deals in a day. Like the world is moving that much quicker. And the World Wide Web and the amount of information on it, the amount of information people can co-work on and the ability for the world to change quickly is such that when there's a recognition that like 5G is coming, then how's retail going to change? Well you can see where China's like going full on in it. And it's like got 5G, right? Where Britain just kind of opened it up to a little bit of 5G yesterday. And the U.S. is still kind of bickering about it and may, trying to make sure that Canada doesn't use Huawei in order to get the 5G going. I mean, you know, in the same kind of contrast, I mean, when U.S. set up the highways, you know, for cars in the U.S., it went crazy. And, and it made U.S. like work very, very quickly, very, very fast now that new highway is 5g china's on it and it's going to change the way that they do business overnight and the rest of the world's going to be you know holding their underwear
2: you mentioned 5G and, and tech a lot, and we're seeing, you know, Lululemon is technical with leisure, but it doesn't really have kind of tech in the sense of electronics involved. We've seen kind of Fitbit and others and Apple get into that, and, and they're really actually penetrating the apparel business. If you are starting a new apparel business today, how would you be thinking about the technological aspect? Which technologies do you think would actually make a real difference in this business?
3: Well, what most people don't realize is that At least right now, I have never seen a piece of garment with technology built in it that isn't the most uncomfortable thing I could ever think of. It feels like shit. And so, you know, like they can dream all they want about it, but if people aren't going to wear it, it's not going to work. So, and I'm the last one to say, okay, well, so that'll never work, but that's not true. I mean, people will figure out how to make that soft and beautiful but because i follow the business so closely i haven't seen that innovation happen in apparel in my first time i probably saw built in you know wires and conductivity and it was maybe 12 13 years ago but nothing has changed in the feel of a garment so if i had to sit back and look at it i would say this was my thinking like maybe 5 or 6 years ago and because the fact of the matter is, is the most functional clothing is what gymnasts wear or like a track field. So it's, it's totally like we're top to bottom and it's really tight underneath the crotch and the armpits, right, for total movement. Eventually, we will move there. If you looked over like a 50-year period, you can see we're getting clothing that's tighter, 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 tighter and more comfortable, more comfortable. So you just have to extrapolate out. I go back to when I was like six years old and I remember my dad saying to me when I grew up, like there would, you know, we would have something implanted in our forearm and that would run our lives type of thing. And I thought that was, he was a school teacher, right? But I kind of see us wearing a full Lycra outfit that probably handles UV stink, but not wires. Because I think that the phone is going to be on our arms or it'll be we'll be wearing glasses. There'll be no such thing maybe in a phone in 10 years. And the back parts of the glasses will have little things that stick into the skin and will take out blood or perspiration or test things and then send that right to big data to find out whether there's an, you know, we're off base compared to big data. And then if we are, then we'll set up a video thing with a doctor and a specialist who will then tell us what to do. And if we need to get further tests, it will actually set up the appointment for us, right? So I don't think that at this point, I don't see apparel, the actual apparel being the thing, because I think the technology around the glasses and the phone is getting too good too quickly, that it's going to pass the apparel by.
2: Okay, so the fabrics get more technical just on materials, and then the electronics get miniaturized, and, and they take on the, the electronic capabilities. Right, Chip, what is your relationship? How's your relationship with Lululemon now? Um, have, have your relationship with the board improved? Have you talked to the new CEO, uh, Calvin McDonald?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, Calvin and I have been out for a couple walks in the last year, a couple two-hour walks. My thing is that the, you know, Lou Lemon AGM, the chairman of the board, I sent questions in and he lied. One, he didn't answer my questions and said that he had answered all my questions and he hadn't. And then came back on this last year and said, Oh, I didn't see all the questions. I forgot to scroll down. This is a guy that's sitting there with lawyers on each side of him, you know, and at an AGM, So You know, because I'm a man of integrity and I and my time, I only have so much time in life. I can't, I don't know how I could have a discussion with them, and they're not going to tell me the truth on anything. So then it's just not really worth my time. I could institute, I could come, I could do it, but then I'd always be questioning anything they said to me. So it's not worth my time to my brain power to be with that. Type of person. So I would prefer to be with somebody of integrity like Chairman Ding, where I can move things quicker forward. I feel like I'm getting the truth on things. And it's just a nicer way to live.
0: Mm-hmm. And then I also think, you know, in the book, you warned about hiring, you know, super experienced people or making someone who's operation expert the CEO. Why is doing something like that bad?
3: An operational CEO will ultimately work for. The quarterly results will work to metrics. Will work for three-year options, where a brand culture person will always be working for the long run because you can't be a brand culture person without making decision. Every decision is for the long run, you know. And I think that's the difference, right? Because I, I was a long-term shareholder, Lulam, and I was looking at like a two hundred-year hold, where. The directors were looking at it like, you know, just what they could get out of it for their own reputation and for their own PE firms. And then the CEOs working at it, knowing that the average CEO lasts four to five years. And so how can they maximize the stock in four to five years and get out? So we were totally conflicted even though that in the charter of Lou Lemon, it's like the directors and the CEO are supposed to work for the long-term value of the shareholders. That's complete bullshit.
2: You know, I agree with it so intuitively because <laughs> I feel like a product person myself. But when I look at what's happened, when companies make these decisions, it's really hard to pick a product person as your successor. I mean, the most, I think, like sharp example would probably be Apple, right? Steve Jobs, who of all people understand product, picked Tim Cook, the operations guy, as the successor. Like, would you say that Steve made the right choice?
3: Well, it's very hard. Like, I think even for myself or Steve, or I think Steve's hard to replicate, right? I think it's more like like how you set up the board of directors. Hmm. And I think that if you get have a, what I would see in the future, rather than just having an audit committee or a governance committee, you also have a brand product committee. So that's what we have at Amr. You know, I think this is what most companies don't have. And then they don't have enough directors that can be on that committee that really understand brand product. And so what you basically end up with on a board of directors is... uh, One, because of the fiduciary responsibility and the litigation in the U.S., you end up with a bunch of people that aren't creative because a creative person to be on a board almost kills them, right? So you end up with people that don't appreciate it and don't understand it and don't understand the long-term value and and actually fight it. Mm -hmm. But if you set up the board correctly, and I'm thinking that inside of Apple, this is what Steve did, and then you never lose the reason why it's successful in the first place.
0: All right. We only have a few minutes left, but so some last fast questions. One thing you repeatedly say in the book, you know, we were discussing saying, you know, what is he actually looking at here? You can spend 10 minutes in a retail store and then estimate annual profit within a 5% margin. What are you taking in in those 10 minutes? What are you looking at? What's feeding your intuition?
3: Well, I'd look at engagement of the people in the store. I'd look to see how many people are in the change rooms, what people are taking out of the change rooms. But my first three indications are: is lighting on the product? I find often the lighting ends up showing up the floor very well, but not the lighting. So the manager hasn't got the training to do that. If I find dust balls in the corner, then I'll say that that's a an indication. I'll look at the bathroom. Miles like bathrooms and in clothing stores because I feel if people needed to pee, then they probably didn't have the time or the patience in order to buy clothing. So I think the cleanliness of a bathroom kind of reminds me of the cleanliness in a restaurant. If a restaurant kitchen isn't clean, then you're not gonna go and you're not gonna use it. So those are the first three indicators. And then I think just by able to see, looking at the merchandising and how it's set up for speed and efficiency for someone to come in the store, look, Find exactly what they want, get in the change room, get out of the change room, get to the cash register, and everything by not waiting very long. I look at how that system is set up. And then I look at the relation between the price and the value of the product to kind of like look at the volume of what I think it's going through. Also, I extrapolate between what time of day and what day I'm in the store because if I'm there, there on Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, and there's only three people in the store, but three people in the store at that time may mean 50 people in the store on a Saturday afternoon at two o'clock. So, I mean, there's a million things mm. that kind of go through my mind. I'm just giving you the very cursory bit of it.
2: Absolutely. After Lululemon Chip, you and your family founded Kitten Ace, which I always thought like kind of like Lululemon 2.0, technical wear and, and make it even more functional and everyday wear. Kitten Ace hasn't quite worked out the same as Lululemon. What was the story with Kitten Ace? And I guess, why didn't it catch on the same way?
3: Well, I think the foundation wasn't set up as well as I would have liked. Mostly it's my son and my wife started as something very small. And then when, because they were doing it, Lou Lemon, I think, was looking for a way to kick me off the board. And so they, they used that as an excuse that my wife and son were doing it. So they didn't kick me off the board, but they set up another committee to do it because it's very hard for that board to kind of go publicly and say that they've kicked the founder off something like Lou Lemon. So it was a power play by PE guys and some what I'd call insecure board of directors. So so there I am doing nothing. And I go, okay, well, I'm gonna go into kit and ace, but I've started enough small companies where, and I was 55 or something, I, I couldn't go slow anymore. You know, so I went, I'm gonna build a billion dollar company in five years. And so I failed. Okay, and then, so now I know what nobody else in the world knows about building a $1 billion company in five years. And number one is that when dealing with family, there still has to be a final decision holder. And because we tried to to do it as a committee, it just didn't work. And when you do a committee on a fast growing company, it you need to be like kind of moved our, back to our conversation about China and, and the USA and Europe. You can't do things by committee and you're going that speed. So we didn't have proper governance in place. As much as we are a culture family, built everything on culture and we set the linguistic abstraction, the people didn't have organic enough time to gel together to be one culture. And then the third thing was, is what I recognize is by having too much money, is that people weren't inventive and creative about how to solve problems. And actually, they when a problem or challenge was created, they just throw money at it or people. And it wasn't the right thing to do, and it didn't create the right processes within the company to be tight. So now I know what nobody else in the world knows, but now I'll let you know.
2: Thank you. We really appreciate that. Last question, I guess. When you look across industry, regardless of which industry, which companies do you admire the most today that do you think are doing an exceptional job that maybe others are not fully appreciative of yet?
3: Well, I think you have to look, you know. Amazon, obviously, because I think that that was a classic case. Like, even though Lou Lemons were $32 billion now, to me, it will always only be worth half of what it's ever available, whatever it is. And so the directors are responsible for that $32 billion that Lou Lemon isn't worth. Why? If you would talk to analysts and Wall Street and everything else at a certain time with Amazon, they'd say, show us a profit, show us a profit. We're not going to invest unless you show us a profit. And Steve Bezos just said, no, I'm going to like build the company the way it should be built, like a private company, because I need to get scale on the whole thing. And when I want to show a profit, then I'll start showing profit. And I think it's the same with Tesla. Like, Basically Elon Musk has gone public but he's showing the finger to everybody and just going you know like you guys analysts aren't very smart. I mean it's not that they're not smart they just don't have anywhere close they have maybe 1% of the information and probably even less when you could look at 5 10 years in future where the business is going compared to the owner founder and that type of thing. So I think Amazon and Tesla are being operated as though they're a private company that's by mistake public, and that's why you're seeing the value in them.
0: That's a great way to wrap things up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chip.
3: Take care. Bye-bye.
1: ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.